0: Welcome, one and all, to Strange New Worlds, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Tailing frequencies are open. I love this job.
1: Strange New Worlds, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 102, Children of the Comet, comes to you now via Enterprise Bingo.
0: And just a bit of fleet news before we launch into the episode, uh, indeed. Pete, news of the Fantastic Geek Fleet, starting off with uh, this being the second episode that we saw at the Red Carpet World premiere, Uh, and it was certainly great to see it uh, on on the small screen. I have to admit, Pete, I picked up some details at home that I was not able to see from the front row seat.
1: So grateful and happy to finally be able to talk to our audience about this episode.
0: Indeed, and uh, yesterday we wrapped up the Moon Knight series season combination of six episodes question mark whatever wh- whatever that journey was it was a great journey uh, and we we've wrapped things for now we think uh, on on the Moon Knight podcast yesterday
1: brought you a little book of Boba Fett uh, look at the Disney gallery earlier this week you can find that on the book of Boba Fett feed by Fantastic
0: Geek uh, and of course over on the Marvel movie podcast feed and simulcast on that pop culture podcast feed Uh, we spoke about dr strange at the beginning of the week which at this point pete feels like a long time ago uh in an mcu far far away uh but i mean my goodness we've had our star wars our marvel uh and today our star trek so times are good
1: on that star wars matt i'm working on our segments because we've never done a star wars show that isn't centered on a bounty hunter. So uh, I'm on the segments there, Matt's on the uh, the audio and all that, but we're bringing you that for the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, which will begin streaming uh, under two weeks at this point.
0: Pete, the beginnings of things, the ends of things in the stars, what's on our space radar for tomorrow?
1: bringing it back to star trek matt we will uh post our picard season two wrap tomorrow monday uh, may 16th so if you haven't gotten those thoughts in
0: as you're listening to this get them in so pete now that we've checked in with the entire fantastic geek fleet let's head into the mission briefing for this episode The wind whistles
1: over a parched landscape as inhabitants, dressed to protect themselves from the harshness of the environment, walk toward their tents. A mother and a child look skyward and see a comet as Neota Uhura narrates a cadet's log on stardate 2912.4. The Enterprise is surveying the Persephone system, studying the behavior of an ancient comet, c 2260 Quintin. She is doing a rotation in landing party readiness protocols, which doesn't involve comets, so duties are slow. But she's been invited to dinner at the captain's cabin and encouraged to dust off her dress uniform by Lieutenant Ortegas, who meets her coming out of the lift in
0: sweats. (laughs) Um, The first of many times in this episode where we are getting character interaction and character conversation that is actually exposition, but never feels like it. Ortegas takes one look at Uhura, and it's clear that this has been a prank, and it is stated that there's not enough time for her to go back and change. So in that sense, almost... It adds to the friendliness uh, of the prank. Um, References made to Enterprise, bingo, a cadet thing. Uh, Again, the line from Ortega's, you know, I was a cadet once too. So again, showing a sense of camaraderie. Um, I won't mention it at every single point that happens, Pete, but I just marveled at this whole episode. It's obviously Uhura-centric, so we're going to get lots on her background and perspective and all of this. But her interactions with most of the characters here also providing them uh, illumination as well. Of course, they're headed to the captain's table, uh, which is more effortless exposition. Why does the captain have dining time with lowly cadets and so forth? It's because he likes regular folks like cadets to be brought in to things, um, indeed, so Pike can understand the pulse of the ship. And with that, Pete, they ding dong on the captain's door.
1: And he greets them in an apron, laughing at the dress uniform gag. Tells them to grab a drink because he has to deal with the ribs. Number one is there. She welcomes Ahura and asks, who asks, uh, new chief engineer, Hemmer, if she can help. He takes the knife he was chopping carrots with and stabs it into the cutting board, sternly telling her no. As Spock explains, she's offended him. She didn't mean to. She was raised to offer help to anyone with a sensory impairment. Hemmer says that a human in his condition might consider himself impaired. Spock tells her, though Hemmer is blind, his other senses compensate. Hemmer doubles down and says they are superior. Uhura read that the Enar have a form of precognitive ability, which Hemmer knew she was going to ask because everyone always does. He catches a carrot over his shoulder tossed by Spock, who he tells he, te- he uh, telegraphed te- uh, telepathically, which he intended. O'Hara tells them it's a hazing thing before speaking Andorian and Vulcan and leaving to get a drink. But they like her.
0: I like that it is somewhat ambiguous as to whether this is a hazing thing uh, solely like will it not be amusing for the new cadet if we do the carrot gag, you know, like, perhaps that happened, uh, you know, in an unseen uh, moment, or perhaps it was indeed, you know, the telepathy of the Vulcans and the telepathy of Enar. Um, It's better kind of not knowing, and it's better just the two of them kind of stoically, nonetheless, you know, this idea, you know, they like her and so forth time passes and pike is telling a story of his ensign days chasing a nausican uh this may be the earliest chronological reference to the nausicans i'd have to check memory alpha uh, but ensign pike chasing the pantsless nausican uh tripped over those pants and was told that uh, you know told by a superior officer that perhaps he's not security material uh spock mentions not understanding the human proclivity to laugh at misfortune calling it impolite which i think was a point where many of us watch and go oh yeah it is kind of impolite uh, but pike gives him a little lesson here sometimes things go so bad you just need to laugh
1: something that will be a recurring motif within this episode here um ohura hums a folk song from her village in kenya pike visited lake simbi Nayama several times and ohura grew up just a few miles away He says the Enterprise only gets a few cadets a year from Starfleet and they have to be pretty impressive to make the cut. He hears she speaks 12 languages 37 though, Matt, in reality no cap, as the kids say.
0: Uh, Pete, you uh, able to communicate vibrantly in the many modern dialects and such. Uh, Uhura adds uh, that the uh, humble brags slash i think is just outright a humble person but notes that in kenya uh there are 22 languages so it's it's best to communicate with others in their own language uh pike uh notes that she will be on landing party duty soon um and asks where she will be in 10 y- y- years uh, which is stumble enough for us to be setting up a a reminder about Pike's own tenure uh, ticking story clock there. Uh, She says that she's not sure that she is Starfleet material uh, and to a person around the table there, whether they are series regulars or stalwart, unnamed folk uh, extras, you might say, they all seem shocked. Uh, Pike and Spock combine to note the thousands apply to get onto the Enterprise every year, yet here she is. And with that, Pete, we get her tragic backstory.
1: Yes. Uh, she's always wanted to study alien languages and has an ear for them. She was going to attend the University of Nairobi, or both her parents taught. But a week before she was to start, they were killed in a shuttle accident along with her older brother. She just couldn't go to the campus in their absence. She moved in with her grandmother, but didn't feel like she fit anywhere her grandmother had been in starfleet when she was young and always used to talk about it and uhura didn't know what else to do pike appreciates her honesty and hopes that she discovers a place she feels she fits maybe matt even by the end of the episode
0: i like though that if one suspends disbelief or if this is an entry point to viewers for star trek um it is likely perhaps not likely it is quite possible that she is on a trajectory, uh, which is out of Starfleet again, suspending disbelief and so forth. Um, it it does seem believable in the moment later Spock and Uhura are walking. Spock notes that honesty is appreciated on the ship, but Starfleet is a lifelong dream for many people. So perhaps she should consider stepping off this path to let someone else, uh, advance on it. Uh, there are so many great one-liners in this episode. They're not mm-hmm. funny one-liners or zinger one-liners. They are beautiful one-liners. I think back to the, the line earlier where Pike was reflecting on having visited Kenya and referencing how, I think he said, heartachingly beautiful. There, There's a lyricism to the basic dialogue in these first two episodes that really is admirable.
1: Yes. Later, number one, notes how the uh, cadet question Pike has asked a hundred times before felt different that night as they're doing the dishes. She asks if he's considered his fate isn't written. And then he recites the names of the cadets he saves when it happens. He's been saying them over and over again, like a reminder to stay the course and save their lives. But she refuses to believe there isn't another way. Spock pages pike to the bridge because of a problem with the comet that streaks to the side of the M-class Persephone three and strikes before the footage is rewound on the simulation that the bridge view screen plays, suggesting when it happens in two days there will be no survivors of an intelligent pre-warp spe- species, the Deleb, who are likely unaware of the danger.
0: Number one proposes simply moving the comet a bit. Spock concurs, indeed, with uh, a, a quad of ion engines acting as one uh, that could nudge the comet out of the way. La'an says it could be done in an hour, and uh, Hemmer, who's not been given a ton to do in these two episodes, uh, is on the bridge getting a dig in that, of, uh, of course, La'an can say that it'll be done in an hour. He will be the one needing to do the retrofit to make it all possible. Pike is a bit gleeful at planning on saving the world all before breakfast, Uh, and an hour later they fire off those engines, but the comet has a force field. Uh, We get the credits. This is an episode written by uh, Henry Alonso Myers and Sarah Tarkoff, and directed by uh, recent Star Trek uh, directing alum Maja Vervillo.
1: In the briefing room, Number One explains they've tried every scan, hail, they can think of, but cannot find life on the comet. But they did find an enormous, mostly subterranean structure. Spock says it suggests alien intelligence, which is why Pike has asked Xeno anthropologist Sam Kirk to join them. La'an posits it's a derelict spacecraft,
0: a botany base, perhaps? (sighs) uh perhaps she's familiar with such uh, concepts there uh we kind of get a summation here from pike it acts like a comet has elements of a planet and buildings like a spacecraft spock suggests that the built structure surely is the source of these recent troubles uh so they should go there however there are those intermittent shields to worry about uh samuel kirk says that has never heard of a civilization that developed on the surface of a Uh, of a comet Uh, pike compliments him on the mustache and sam suggests that he try it sometime Uh, however right now it's time for them to suit up for a comet mission Uh, and uhura your time to join them as well
1: nurse chapel says the surface of the comet is bombarded by ridiculously high levels of cosmic rays her hypo spray will buy them two hours before their insides liquefy Uhura gets the painful injection burst, which Chapel has had people run from. She asks Spock if he's ready. He's just toying with her, but she noticed that was not his intention.
0: Uh, And Uhura notices this. We get a hero walk, uh, including Uhura pausing, wondering if she can do it, Uh, but all end up in the transporter room where Chief Kyle beams them out. Uh, The camera... Perhaps a tad, obviously. However, it would have been easy to not do this. The camera focuses on Uhura. Uh, We then get the exterior view of it snowing down. Rather, the camera then turns uh, right side up and it is snowing up off the comet as they beam onto it. Uhura is standing on the surface of a a comet, like they said in the trailer, uh, and they begin to walk towards the structure.
1: Inside, Spock reads breathable atmosphere. La'an and Spock secure the chamber. Kirk asks Uhura if she thinks the markings on the object in the center of the room are decorative or linguistic. He tells her she's there for a reason, and she notes the markings repeat in sequence. Maybe a code, but everything seems to point to the egg. She doesn't know its importance, though. Kirk asks if it's a control. Spock thinks perhaps it could affect the comet shields. As Kirk approaches the egg, Yahtzee, it lights up. Spock is familiar with the game, but he is reading a dangerous buildup of energy, which Kirk receives when he touches the egg, sending him across
0: the room. This scene undoubtedly done on the LED stage, and if so, then this production has uh, learned a lot from the prior season of Discovery. Uh, they have great stuff in the foreground, some bits and bobs in the midground to hide the seam where the background LED uh, starts to take over. Also, less obvious now but more obvious later is uh, portions of the grounds that they are standing on are... Uh, reflective you know whether it's meant to be you know, a, a gemstone or water or whatever uh, but that does also help tie things together later on um, just fascinating use to think that this is ultimately just an empty room with the egg thing um, but back to the story we have uh, Sam Kirk approaching that egg blasted by the egg energy not breathing heart not beating they call home the signal is spotty uh, Kyle can't get a lock on them and uh, Spock debuts the use of the tricorder and the scanner as a, uh, as a defib mode that gets that heart back on track.
1: Yes, bringing Kirk back to a stable condition for now, but La'on says all frequencies are down and they're cut off from the ship. Later, she announces Kirk has sustained massive trauma from electrical shock. She sedated him. Ahura suggests they don't touch anything else. Spock says Kirk will not survive without prompt medical attention, and La'an detects that the force field is back up. It seems the comet wants to keep them there. What kind of a comet does that? Spock says Ahura will have to answer that question, but it's her first away mission. The key to their escape may be in the markings all around them, and she is the only linguistics expert there.
0: No pressure. On the planet, we go back uh, to be reminded that the Daleb are family types with children and sympathetics goings on. Maybe even Pete, if you look two ridges over, just past where the camera can see, maybe you'll see a uh, you know an at knocked over, Ray living out of it. It's that kind so... of kind of sympathy there. <laughs> Um, The music tells us that sad dangers are ahead uh, if no one saves this family. So my Star Wars joke aside, the fact that they forego like, mother, what is that? I don't know, daughter, but it makes me feel fearful. Like, just let them be wide-eyed people who don't know about such things in the universe and let the music tell us, you know, don't forget this adorable family is toast if Star Trek doesn't save the day. Um, And indeed, on the bridge, Pike is looking for ideas. Uh, How are we going to get through this uh, force field? It is Ortegas who suggests phaser harmonics. Uh, Find the right frequency. You can cause a shatter. Pike likes it and tells her to run with it. Uhura is
1: pretending not to be in way over her head. But Vulcans are too honest by nature. Uhura thinks Chapel is Spock's girlfriend. Uh, But that was a joke to break the tension. Like the captain said, sometimes things go so badly, you just have to laugh. Spock finds the best way to release tension is to apply rigorous logic. Always an option, too.
0: Lon sort of watches things uh, as the editor works to keep her in the scene, not a slam. This is just not a scene that has a lot of long dialogue. Maybe in retrospect, they could have had some to keep her in the scene. But instead, she's furtively watching. We go back to the bridge and they're ready to fire uh, upon the comet. But now they're being fired upon. Wait, by who? It's them, Ortegas notes. uh, And the them are in a giant ship. Uh, Pike has them hailed the voice actor pete i really really thought was the voice actor who's played optimus prime uh turns out it's a canadian actor who just sounds a whole lot like frank walker
1: i think they found their next optimus prime
0: (laughs) yeah there you go um regardless though he is of the shepherds is it a ridiculous name Uh, And then Christina says it's how the universal translator is translating it. So we get both the ease of like shepherds, shepherds, watch their flock. What's the flock? The flock is the comet. Um, And we also get a little nod to like, maybe they're actually called something else, but we're going with shepherds Uh, from this
1: gigantic centrifugal ship off the enterprise bow, this bearded alien captain. Uh, explaining that they're escorting mahanit their name for the comet which translates as a male um it is far more than a comet it is one of the ancient arbiters of life if they tamper with it again the shepherds will not hesitate to destroy them pike explains their intentions were not hostile as they tried to divert its trajectory which the alien captain calls absurd, since its course is preordained. Pike tells him there are millions of people on the planet. The other captain says it is not a comet, but an instrument, one of few remaining in the galaxy. If it is his will to move, he will move. If it is his will to bring life, he'll do that. If he chooses the planet to die, even die with it, then that is what will happen his people have been charged with the protection of the arbiters for centuries bringing life across the galaxy it is not their prerogative to interfere nor is it the enterprises and though that may line up pike pauses communications with the shepherds and number one says their ship is incredibly advanced faster
0: and stronger uh, Pike also calls them zealots, uh, and number one, just reminds him, don't forget, at the best we could maybe do is buy time for the secret landing party that the Shepherds don't know about. Uh, back on the call with the Shepherd uh, captain, he calls the presence of the secret landing party as blasphemy, and any attempt to save them will be an act of war. Back in the egg chamber, uh, Uhura continues to consider the egg, In scenes that now, if you go back and look at them, it does look like they're kind of in front of an LED backdrop. So a little bit of a learning curve still happening here. Uhura hums as she works, uh, and Spock notes that she should simply stay focused. Uh, This is a lousy pep talk, and she is honest about that. She also shares her frustration that Spock is depending on her. This time Spock speaks more gently and asks if it is her first, uh, the first time that her life has been in danger. She ultimately says yes. And he says such perspectives can be a unique opportunity uh, and that she is here. She is quite simply the only person for the job. The question will be if she rises to the occasion. That is a better pep talk. She goes back to humming while working on her pad. And it is Spock that notes the cave is reacting to her voice. Uh, she does it on purpose this time. Indeed, it is officially lighting up with her. The cave is responding to music number one can't
1: raise the landing party but found a possible signal coming from the comet itself a melodic tune pike has the computer identify the song Vamu vamba a traditional song from earth originating in kenya which can't be a coincidence ohura continues harmonizing and spock says different pitches elicit different responses Laan skipped music class. Here they get her in the scene. Matt, they must have knew you were talking about him. Uh, And Ohura explains harmonics are the ratios between frequencies. Every note vibrates at a specific frequency. Double that frequency and you get the same pitch, an octave higher. The code, it turns out, is a major chord. Musical notes are easily derived from math hence the Star Trekian inclusion here. And Vulcans even theorize it is their fundamental nature that makes them pleasing to the ear. Uhura asks them to match her pitch, which Spock does. She then vocalizes, which he follows. The egg opens like an onion, and eerie, dissonant music resonates. Spock said it would be logical to assume the comet is speaking to them. Uhura sings again, and the comet
0: rumbles. This scene in which, first of all, the link between music and, uh, let's say, frequencies, that kind of end of, let's say, science, and the link between music and math, it feels so authentically Star Trek here, just this notion that we respond to music because... The mathematical underpinnings are universal. Uh, Also, Pete, the portion in which Uhura leads Spock in a rondo or canon I did take music theory. uh, It is a sparklingly lovely moment that just feels like very classic uh, Trek storytelling. We head back to the bridge briefly where they say that the force field has been brought down. The order is given to beam our heroes home. We see them beamed back uh, on board. On the bridge, uh, its shields up in red alert. The Shepherds call in again, angry about the interference. Pike wants to talk and find common ground. Uh, However, the call is ended, and Ortegas uh, rather sarcastically says it went well. Uh, All of a sudden, they're under fire and hit into an act break out of it, right back where it got left off. Shields are at 50%, uh, and evasive maneuvers are initiated. They're not going to fire back. They're not going to run away. Uh, and Spock sets a story clock for one hour uh, for Uhura to translate things, or it's, you know, the comet kills the planet. Pike doesn't want to hurt the Shepherds
1: as they're down to, uh, as the Enterprise is down mm-hmm. to 25%. So they fire phasers, registering a direct hit. They pull away to regroup from... Ortega says the crazy space monks will blow them out of the sky if they try anything to move the comet. Spock asks, what if they didn't? What if the comet moved itself? Pike asks if everyone is ready, as Spock's station is noticeably empty. Enterprise goes to maximum impulse. Pike got word of Ortega's bragging She was going to be the best pilot ever to graduate the Academy. Time to prove it, as she gets them in front of the comet with evasive pattern Ortegas Gamma-1. The Enterprise twists and turns in front of the Shepherds who pursue into the comet's tail, where they stop firing. They hail, but Pike won't accept it yet as the Enterprise descends and has Ortegas come about and orders ops to shut down all systems except life support. He answers the hail, surrendering and claiming complete systems failure. If they don't help, they'll collide with the comet, which will also happen if they try to blow them up. Pike gives his word they will not touch Mahanit again. After a dramatic pause, the Shepherds activate a tractor beam, and Pike tells Spock, He's up.
0: Uh, the shuttle that Spock is in has been hiding on a chunk of comet and, and launches off of it. Boba Fett style, Pete. Okay. Uh, it goes to the, the comet proper, uh, indeed, dialogue that's going into the nucleus of it. The shields are set to radiate heat, which breaks off a large chunk. There's much tension as the shuttle dodges uh, some of the larger pieces hither and yon getting closer and closer back on the ship number one takes a peek at the sensors the sublimation is nudging the comet onto a new course and of course pike points out they're not touching the comet this is no touching it's just the heat uh, as for spock uh he feigns or not a laugh overcomes because sometimes things go so badly you just need to laugh
1: little forced, but I think that goes along with uh, the sentiment of the moment here, having uh, done what he did. The comet then tumbles across the upper atmosphere, which fascinates Spock. Number one says a large quantity of water vapor is entering the planet's atmosphere. Spock says it will permanently change the atmosphere and its composition, reducing aridity and making it more amenable to plant growth, agriculture, and even societal development. The shepherds hail about the glory and mercy that is Mohanit. Perhaps in the future, uh, people on Federation starships will not be so quick to judge, and they will not part as enemies.
0: On the planet, rain arrives in the desert. Mother and child laugh. So we know that its success there on Persephone Three. Pike's captain's log has him wondering who made the comet and how many more are out there. If it was a coincidence or fate uh, for for there to be more life on Persephone Three. Uhura, however, has found something and pulls Pike and Number One aside. Uh, the musical transmission has painted a specific uh, a picture, specifically the comet's course. Uh, The comet did not intend to hit the planet. That was the message. But it was Spock's actions that helped make that happen. However, the message also predicted the comet's shape after the extra ice, uh, ice was shaved off. So perhaps the comet did know its fate.
1: In the corridor, Spock reminds Uhura that many dream of Starfleet and no pep talk could have increased the odds of their survival on the comet. He is certain Starfleet would be fortunate to have an officer
0: like her
1: should she choose to stay.
0: Later, with the comet outside his window, Pike considers uh, its life bringing, you know, this life bringing speck of dust. Uh, he's talking with Number One, and they ponder a message uh, from the future, still not being understood. That's your transfer of the comet's message, as well as the, you know, Borath. Uh, Pike's sacrifice message she tells him not to throw his life away that perhaps he can save the cadets in 10 years but still not be lost to the tragedy what uh, is the fate that he can make
1: later as he looks at a fire in his quarters he has the computer call up all the information for the children he will save whose vibrant and vital images appear on screen
0: We have a tactical analysis inbound. And Pete, let's start with Comet C2260-Quentin, or as we call him around here, Mahaneet.
1: (laughs) I love that we get to see this threat from, you know, the scientific and pseudo-religious perspectives. Ultimately, it's not a threat at all. This is something that, you know, gives water to the planet, changing its destiny forever Um, and the idea that hidden in the message it had given uhura was that it was going to do this to the exact shape of the piece of ice and this resonates further in pike's story what if something can still happen as it's predicted but it all could work out fine
0: Pete, a a powerful, and for much of the episode, villainous force are the mysterious shepherds. A reminder that, Pete, I don't mean this as a slam against uh, season four of Star Trek Discovery, but we get two types of space is the villain in this episode. First is the naturally, question mark, occurring comet, and then the shepherds who are just from out of nowhere and super powerful because here we are out in the edge of space and we meet new friends who have... You know, uh, powerful weapons and new perspectives.
1: Interesting that they went with kind of the foggy, blurry edges on the end of the view screen there. The CGI, as opposed to the uh, prosthetic, might have been a factor of the issue that they were um, shooting during the height of the pandemic in Canada and perhaps they would not have been able to make somebody up that extensively on set. Obviously you've got the people on Persephone three that have the prosthesis, but we don't know when that was shot. And obviously they're outdoors.
0: I think that's a really great perspective that if you can reduce, you know, re- reduce the number of times guest actors need to come in with their breathing mouths Uh, and stand around three
1: o'clock in the morning for six hours of latex application yeah like keep people from getting sick
0: yeah um because then that frees up the core makeup staff to be doing the you know to be like i'm in zone one i only hang out with zone one people you know and all of that so great observation there great example of the star trek teamwork there pete Rather like the teamwork for those who go to patreon.com slash fantastic geek seamless transition.
1: Everybody who
0: contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content, all sorts
1: of levels to choose from. But it takes just a dollar a month to get you at the captain's dinner table there.
0: They help shepherd our fantastic geek comet through the multiverses of Star Trek, Star Wars, Marvel, sometimes DC, and more, uh, and our eternal thanks to them.
1: Can't contribute this month? Get yourself over to Apple Podcasts, open up comms, give us a rating in seconds, a review in just a little while longer to any of our 30 podcast feeds. Helps us immeasurably.
0: Let's set our long-range sensors to scan for some theories. Okay, Pete, first one here. Uhura, uh, as played by Celia Rose Gooding, so inspired by her grandmother who loved Starfleet and spoke so highly of it. Oh man, Pete, who could they possibly get to maybe appear via video call to prop up Uhura or maybe get the person to officially be okay with their likeness to appear. So here's a picture of Grandma. Do you know, Pete, of any... Iconic women who could play grandmother to Ohura.
1: I mean, I'm pretty sure that, uh, Nichelle Nichols is permanently retired. Hopefully they got to her before that. Um, and then there's the nebulous circumstance over a conservatorship right now. So one, let's hope in the real world, the the right thing is happening. And two, if she can appear in our fictional world again and, and play her uh, you know, signature characters, grandmother, that'd only be gravy on top of it.
0: Changing subjects entirely. So there's the observation about Sam Kirk's mustache here. And Pete, I a thought occurred to me when we saw this episode for the first time at the red carpet, it occurred to me again, watching it this past week. And I share this theory uh, not to be cheeky i fear theor- I, I share it from a genuine question here sam kind of saying to pike you know you should try the mustache sometime maybe a little kind of overtone there a little insight into how sam kirk views the world maybe attracted to different folks than his uh, notorious brother jim
1: i mean listen in the future that we've
0: established
1: in this franchise, in this episode, with the exception of one thing I'm going to point out in a moment, uh, yeah, that would no longer be an issue.
0: So may very well be the case. Pete, Gene Roddenberry was rather famously quite agnostic. Uh, one wonders if his experiences in World War II and the years afterwards may have helped inform that. So through that lens, are... Is the episode viewing the faithful shepherds as kind of quaintly religious or is the Comet's foreknowledge speaking to a a larger plan in the stars?
1: I think it can be read precisely as both. And I love that the episode doesn't, you know, sit there and self-aggrandize in terms of Well, it was this all along. It's that it can be both. And it so beautifully speaks to the situation that both Uhura and Pike find themselves in. Her trying to find out in the wake of the tragedy and the decision that she made, you know, will she stick in Starfleet? Him trying to figure out whether, you know, sacrificing himself for these children that he's on a name basis with will be the only way that his
0: future can unfold. It is really incredible. And again, I don't mean to be comparing this to other, you know, current star Trek series, but the way this episode is able to say, we're going to do an Uhura arc that also illuminates other characters with how she interacts with them. And it'll be an opportunity for, I mean, let's just use as, as one other example, We now know that Pike oftentimes takes, you know, prospective really great officers that are cadets or ensigns and poses them the 10-year question. And then afterwards, all the upper officers go, oh, that was a really good answer. That really wasn't too." And there's kind of all this, um, you know, assessment of the cadet. And in this worn moment, you know, it's also a point for Pike to stumble and to get more conversation from him. And frankly, to get some story advancement where, you know, since Pike knows his future... Can't he question it? Um, even though we know it's a fixed point because it's existed, it's existed longer than anything else, uh, or almost anything else in the Star Trek universe. Um, but it's just, it's just great how all this ties together—the notion of fate and faith and plan and all of that. It's just the entire episode is about those core story elements.
1: I appreciated too that they kind of backed off the idea of death with this presented in the first episode and we we know he doesn't die he's you know relegated to the beep beep wheelchair and he's got the melty base prosthetics um the question too that number one really forces him to consider whether this can be avoided and even and i think it's something they'll eventually look at you know just because you get put in the wheelchair doesn't mean in this futuristic time where we have all these cures and everything else that you will ultimately stay in it for the rest
0: of your existence. I think that's a great observation, Pete. Again, I find myself wrestling with knowing how the Pike story ends up, at least I suppose to a certain point. Uh, Are you perhaps proposing that there's story time for him after the successful illusionary rejuvenation on Talos Four, I mean that's just one
1: element of that story. It's all how far out you want to go with it. Obviously, the events of the original series and Spock seemingly going rogue because of the bond we're now seeing he's had with a former captain, um, you know, is is just one aspect. Of that um, all depending too, like how far this series is gonna run up against when Kirk you know James of course takes command of the Enterprise and everything goes down but that we've gone so far into what Pike is going to do to earn that fate that he's willingly accepted it to take the time crystal off Borith, You know, it was a, a, a needed thing to do at that time in order to move that story forward. And now dealing with the sacrifice, knowing who he's going to save, these children now that are going to grow up to be Starfleet cadets, you know, there's saving a metaphorical future and here a physical future you know does his sacrifice live on in what we will find out you know and then Dusty Swinton developed this and you know what is the ultimate legacy of those characters do they staff the enterprise and you know become important players at at some point I think could be a really relevant and wonderful way to go.
0: Do you think that this episode starts a pattern for, let's say the foreseeable future this season of character centric episodes?
1: I do. Um, I know the next couple episodes with, with where we go with that. And we've talked a lot before, you know, whenever we start a series, the rule of thumb really is you have seven episodes until the cement dries on character. And then it's pretty much set in stone. And yes, you can reboot and bring in new characters who become recurring cast members and regulars and, and things like that. But you know, your, your core is solidified and unless it's a, excuse me, a situation where you completely wipe them away. You know, I think of like a walking dead of, you know, just the revolving door that went on there. But the show remains the show, as it were. Um, but I think that uh, the audience and our listeners in particular are really going to enjoy the way they unfurl
0: character over the next couple. While we're talking, uh, while we had been talking about Pike's future a moment ago, do you think, I mean, clearly Anson Mount is still filming season two he's not going to get killed off at the end of or not going to get quasi killed off or you know whatever it is it's a 10-year
1: time frame that's it's quite right right
0: do you think there's a phase of this show let's say let's say the show just for the sake of argument goes six seasons do you think there's a season or two without anson mount in it
1: god i hope not um And I think the way that it's laid out is that it'll bring you to that event. And the thing is, we know that it's coming, Um, whether or not the ultimate outcome of that can be changed. I mean, look, when we see Pike in the original series, okay, bad thing happened, and poor guy is in a chair, and oh, Spock has such a bond with him that he does this. We thought he was close with Kirk. He was close with this other captain. Huh. Spock had a past. And now, you know, we know so much about Pike and we're going to learn so much more. It's a super emotional scene for me at the end of this episode where he's looking at those kids. And it just reinforces this Star Trek ideal that, it's not about the one it's about the many and he knows what's going to happen to him. It's about the ultimate meaning now for him of this sacrifice and to see those little kids who are going to grow up and have their lives in, in service just like him. You know, it's just a wonderful place to end this episode.
0: Well, Pete, no spoilers here. Next week's episode directed by uh, actress and director Leslie Hope, uh, who many of us may know as uh, Terry Bauer from 24. So my question is this, Pete. Next week, does someone get killed off with the sad no uh, no, <laughs> batink, batonk clock by the end of it as we bid someone the, goodbye?
1: The, the, the sad silent countdown? Gosh, uh, if they could find a way to work it in there somehow. We know it won't be Pike Um, I was unaware that, uh, she had directed that episode. So now something to watch for,
0: uh, any other theories that you have? So
1: this thing that they do to Uhura at the beginning with the dress uniform, which a doesn't really look like a dress uniform looks a little more like sporty, and, you know, um, I would not have pegged as their ceremonial outfit but this idea of hazing in the future, Matt, we're still going to be doing this kind of barbaric ritual.
0: Well, first of all, I would say when it comes to Starfleet uniforms, uh, prior to the Kurtz Trek era, they already were loosey goosey with like, there's a new show. Let's do a new uniform and we'll figure out why it is, you know, later. Um, let alone in the Kurtz Trek era stuff just changes willy nilly. Um, so I think that in universe, the department of uniforms or whatever it is for Starfleet is just a very vibrant place where all of a sudden, you know, Admiral Smith is like, I don't know, what if we did really shiny dress uniforms? Okay, memo to the fleet, starting next month, they're all shiny dress uniforms. And it just, they just roll with it. Um, as for the notion of hazing here, I think that if nothing else, Star Trek is imagining a future where there's some good-natured jokes to be had at at which feelings are not hurt, Um, and if anything, there's an inclusivity. Pike getting a chuckle out of Uhura, uh, misdressing for this. It's not a laugh at her, it's kind of more a, you know, welcome welcome aboard. You know, you fell for it, now you're one of us. One can assume that perhaps uh, Ortegas once showed up as a, as a cadet or an ensign, uh, dressed similarly. And perhaps if we go back far enough in, uh, in Pike's resume, you know, he was, he was the guy who, uh, you know, brought the wrong thing to the dinner and, and, you know, and, and that it's all, it's all part of welcoming people in.
1: So we know one square on enterprise bingo. What do you got on the other squares?
0: I still can't quite figure out what enterprise bingo is, and if it exists as just a way to communicate, like, "Hey, bingo game! Games tend to be friendly unless you're playing Monopoly," um, and we're having fun with your ex- we're having fun with you, not fun at your expense. If that's the purpose of it, so be it. As for enterprise bingo being a cadet thing, I don't know trip to engineering or. I don't know what other cadet-oriented things one might go through on the Enterprise, but not necessarily. So maybe this is something they circle back to. That would be fun if we find out later on what what uh, what Enterprise Bingo really is. So
1: with uh, Hammer, we check in about his as an Enar, precognitive abilities, and then interesting that they link him with Spock, who Vulcans have telepathic ability. So I I think you really stick a pin in those for future stories.
0: Yeah. One could certainly foresee, you know, oh no, there's been a cave in, and Spock and company, or Hemmer and company, are... Trapped! uh Oh no! Wait, Hammer's coming around. He's been roused. We've we've done a paste of root to make him wake up. Hammer, can you communicate with Spock through the, the 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 rocky tomb that we are in? Yes, I can. That that sort of thing. Um, one would hope that's what they're perhaps setting up. Let alone um, you know, as opposed to just hey, Memory Alpha says uh, the Enor telepathics. So let's make reference to that with the other quasi-telepathic eye. It's amazing
1: that a character
0: in Uhura
1: who's been around for 50-plus years that we knew so little about her background come to find here that her parents were teachers. She had an older brother, and they perished, and she went to live with her grandmother.
0: Yeah, it kind of was this stunning moment where it's like, oh, uh, turns out I don't know this character very well. Um, and insofar as the show is respectful of the TOS past, but not kind of bowing at the altar at all times, you know, no one complained for nearly 70 episodes of classic Trek that the supporting characters had thin onscreen, uh, character resumes, you know, thin backgrounds and so forth. Uh, I mean, heck, how much do we know about Kirk? We meet his brother in one episode where it's like, oh man, William Shatner played Sam Kirk with a mustache and now he's dead. That means it's really threatening. Um So it's just a product of the time, but it's also an excuse now to say, who is this character and what is she about? Um, and frankly, it comes at the perfect time to have the cadet learn new things about the ship that we are still somewhat new to. Um it, it, It's just an inspired... Uh, time to to reveal these things about her and about the ship. So Star Trek
1: has actually been to the Persephone system before Matt. Persephone five was featured in uh, the next generation in the 16th episode of, of the first season uh, titled too short a season.
0: Admiral old guy ages backwards to wear less <laughs> terrible makeup and to step out of his, impossible wheelchair you can go down a fun memory alpha click hold to find out how difficult it was to make this episode i remember watching it as a kid uh this the two shortest season episode i remember watching it as a kid being like the gimmick is he ages backwards and he's a jerk like eh, you know pete they're not all gems when you make 24 or 25 episodes per season which is kind of astonishing to look back as uh to look back at um it's fun that of all the planets they could pick, it's a system that's two planets over from one that we've been to before. I think that that's not necessary, but but fun to do. Speaking of gems,
1: Matt, how about this Spock Chapel spark?
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's obviously picking up on something that kind of, sort of was there in Classic Trek. Um, so it has a... I don't want to say a real basis because whatever story decisions they're making, you know, this is authentic Star Trek and so forth, but picking up from that thread that wasn't ever going to be really looked at on account of, you know, just the true uh, episodic storytelling of the time and saying, okay, what can we do with it? Well, here's a starting point. Another bonus of introducing that here, a, Uhura gets to notice it as like something that's new to her versus like, That's just a rapport that those two people have. I've tuned that out months and months ago, uh, some other officer might say. Um, But it also, frankly, gives Jess Bush something to do in this episode. This is an episode that, um, you know, doesn't have Dr. Mbenga in it at all. Decisions need to get made as to who gets lines and who gets, you know, who who gets story time. And I think that it's a very, um, you know, for the little story time that Jess Bush has... She's given something to do, which is kind of sort of start a a connection here with Spock that Uhura can notice and the audience can notice as well.
1: And then with Sam Kirk here, the seemingly familial recklessness to touch this object and to need to have his
0: day saved. You know, Pete, hopefully this is the last time that a Kirk sees something he wants, and just kind of goes out reaching touchy-touchy or diving on in, cowboy diplomacy style, I think after this, all the Kirk's are going to be like, let's now make careful, considered decisions and not dive on into situations ever again. With that, let's go to hailing frequencies.
2: Hailing frequencies open, sir.
0: Let's start with our Twitter poll, Pete, and it asks uh, what you would do if invited to the captain's table hang?" Uh, session here uh nominally the bottom choice chop the carrots got 23.8 percent listen quietly got 21.4 percent uh sip and chat got 19 percent and wear a dress uniform got 35.7 percent uh some replies on Twitter first one up JT Adkins JTA is me uh, if Spock had taken his Vulcan liar on the away mission the resulting duet Could have fixed everything and jump-started a romance (laughs) with Uhura. Maybe next time. Great episode. I'm totally fine if Pike uh, eventually alters his fate. This is Trek, not the Bible. I'm okay with altering canon. Uh, Pete, the mention of music here uh, reminds me of something I wanted to say earlier, which is uh, when we were at the red carpet uh, premiere, the gal sitting next to me was very eager to see uhura's musical like as soon as uhura was humming it was like yes because uhura sings in tos um and she was just very excited to see that musical connection there uh which if nothing else uhura sings in tos that provides a background for the musical portion here
1: and that they went out and got an actress matt from a broadway musical which you were the one to tell me she was in I think speaks to wanting to include that character trait even more.
0: Yeah, and in fact, quick uh history here on Celia Rose Gooding, uh whose mother is a Broadway veteran as well, uh Celia Rose Gooding at age 17 was involved in the really early process for Jagged Little Pill, the Alanis Morissette musical. Um she was kind of the I'll say the second female lead, although the main character at various points in the process has been non-binary. But just, so we'll say the, the top supporting female role was uh, played by Celia Rose Gooding, even in the earliest of processes, like they're workshopping a thing before it even hits stage. She's with it from age 17 to 19 as they're putting it together, as they're doing out of town tryouts, as they're do, you know, so on and so forth. Broadway debut at age 19, you know, high-stakes, high-profile musical, November 2019, life is great. Four months later, obviously, Broadway shuts down. What's that mean for her career? What's that mean for the future of any Broadway person? Um, turns out that opened up her schedule to align with getting cast here. Uh, and when they announced that Celia Rose Gooding was part of this show in September 2021, it was shortly before Broadway had officially announced a restart date and certainly around the time when it was like, Hey, here's when our come back to work stuff is going to be. Uh, and she did not return to that show. So a loss for the show, but think how she felt when Broadway shut down. Hey, will I ever have a career again here? We, <laughs> six months later, she's on star Trek. She's so, an
1: international ingenue now fate or coincidence.
0: Uh, not fate to have heard from james the sagacious that's that big Killen on twitter the writing just amazing the character development is already amazing the dinner scene was perfect the away mission had a disco universe upgrade compared to tos everything looked amazing great to see the wonderment for the strange and new andre yeager at dr in 1983 says uhura is my new hero great story and i love this cast Make It So, KCLYLE1 on Twitter, says, I'm sure the Trek purists are uh, going this, but I'm liking, maybe going to dislike this, is what Make It So was saying. But I'm liking it. I know that much. That's what Make It So was saying. Pike doesn't take himself too seriously, and I love the design of the ship. I thought the aliens in this episode all looked good, especially the ones on the planet. Great makeup and effects. Was there ever any mention of Ahura working with Pike and Spock before TOS? Or that she worked with Sam Kirk. Doesn't really bother me. Just curious. I haven't seen TOS in decades. While while I like the standalone episodes. I hope they uh, keep connecting to the bigger Star Trek universe. I'm a sucker for that stuff. To answer his question Pete. Well let's see. I know she was not in the original pilot. Um, and I to be honest. I have to go back and watch the Sam Kirk episode. I, I think that's a late season two one. Um, Operation Annihilate and I think it's probably just like I think that's probably at a point where they're not necessarily going for a ton of character connections it's just like Jim your brother is dead oh no I'm sad and half an episode later Jim Kirk is doing his normal Jim Kirk stuff
1: yeah um, I don't believe we've ever gotten the uh, check in that Ohura had uh, served with them but again they're they're doing such a great job Star Trek in general of painting in these blank spaces. So, uh, again, that you're eventually going to be able to go back to the original series and watch these episodes with the idea that, all right, wow, Kirk just lost his brother, but Spock
0: and uh, Uhura served with him, so they share that loss as well. The last tweet comes from Spiderham Lincoln, at TessLC139. This was a solid episode of Star Trek, nothing fancy, good science fiction, and great character development for a beloved classic like Uhura. Strange New Worlds has barely begun, but it's shaping into a fine little show. Hemmer was my favorite character before Episode 1 even aired, and uh, I'm still waiting to get to know him, all in due time. The Captain's Dinner was a nice way for the audience to see this burgeoning family. Something that took Picard seven years to realize on his enterprise. I'm thankful we have Strange New Worlds. And this episode title really worked for me. I thought this was an A great episode, but I voted for Chop the Carrots because I'm Team Hemmer.
1: <laughs> to Apple Podcast, Matt, where we have a review from Jay Killen9. I believe that's James Sagacious, right? Gotta on Twitter. Be. Uh, the headline is three things. Gave us five stars, and he says, One, Matt and Pete love this content. Everything they do comes from being fans, and he spelled fans with the P-H, Matt, first. Two, they are two of the most thoughtful and talented people you'll ever meet or listen to. The balance of creative critique and relevant, all caps, social commentary is unmatched. Three, the followers, he spelled that with a Ph, fans with a Ph, and friends with a Ph of Fantastic Geek are the best slice of sci fi slash fantasy fandom, also with Ph's, on the internet. Download, listen, chime in, and enjoy this content tenfold.
0: Well, thank you for those kind words there. Very, very much appreciated. Uh, we go to the email inbox where we hear from Stacy, uh, a.k.a. Stingray slash Trek Girl on uh, Twitter and Stacy's uh, wise thoughts here shared. Hi, Matt and Pete. Well, I think we can confidently say from these first two episodes of Strange New Worlds that we are in for a fun ride. I really like the aesthetic of this show. The ship looks amazing. The uniforms are beautiful. Even everyone's hair is fantastic. Especially Anson Mounts, it defies gravity. <laughs> I'll just mention again, Pete, as a heterosexual man in my middle ages, uh, Anson Mount even more handsome in person. Uh, back to Stacy, the dinner in the captain's quarters was a nice way to get to know some of the characters. I like that Pike wants to hear from his crew that he values everyone's thoughts and can be informal when not on duty. Celia Rose Gooding was so good; her portrayal of her as nerves regarding the dinner were relatable. I, too, am frequently unburdened by conversational boundaries. Luckily, it doesn't get me into trouble much. And her singing. Wow, she has a voice. I liked how that ended up being the method of communication later. I also enjoyed Spock not getting why stories of our misfortunes are funny. But it's true. Sometimes things go so badly, you just have to laugh. Like when you go on your first date after your divorce, trip in the parking lot, hit your forehead on the ground, break your glasses, and the dude uh, you're there to meet has to help you up. This is a hypothetical example, of course. Peter will pause Stacy's words to say, that's a very specific it's hypothetical very example. very
1: specific, and I uh, hope it works out for everybody hypothetically.
0: Hailing uh, frequencies are always open. Uh, back to Stacy's words here. One thing I didn't really like about this episode, as amazing as Celia Rose Gooding was in the scene where Hura talks about why she joined Starfleet, I could have done without yet another character motivated by parental death. It's overdone in general, and definitely on Star Trek lately. Hura couldn't have just wanted to do something different than her parents. She could still have been unsure if Starfleet was the thing for her, and everything Spock said to her would have worked. But no, we had to kill off most of her family. That said, I can't wait to see what season holds for our intrepid crew. As always, looking forward to your thoughts. That from Stacy. It's
1: thoughtful that she considered, could there be another way that we could go into uhura's background now now it's gotten me thinking you know the the first time we ever get a little bit more other than she was from kenya in in africa is that she lost you know the bulk of if not all of her family we don't know if there was another brother she says older um yeah now it kind of comes off like bruce wayne and the loss of uh his parents every time and it's it's just the first time so yeah uh, Yeah. let's consider other ways to uh to give backstory on our characters I,
0: i don't want to propose that there's not an alex kurtzman overseeing all of these star trek shows but thinking about how like Dead family is also Burnham's thing. Just off the top of my head, as I make my way through some of the other cases, Saru's, uh its also Ceruse thing. You know, th- thing. like I would agree that. Leave it this way. Actually, the, the,
1: it's everybody on Discovery other than Michael because Mom's still alive.
0: Um, true. Mom is alive. Asterisk. Mom was gone for forever for a good period of time. You know, and, and all that. Just the, the point being, I think. Within the world, within the Star Trek Strange New Worlds production, you say, this is a good in for this character. We don't need to necessarily vit, visit the other character's parental situation moving forward. But then you take one step back and go, and in the, in the Kurtz Trek era pantheon, oh man, there's a lot of dead parents of people in their 20s and 30s and perhaps early 40s. So maybe we want to dial that back a bit. So I think a very fair, critical criticism there from
2: Stacy. Now, Pete, let's hear from Admiral Fred in the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete, and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Strange New Worlds Season 1, Episode 2. Really loved that this was a kind of Ohura-centric episode. Really put the character in her place quite strong, although she's still a cadet and even doubting if she belongs in Starfleet. Apart from the story of the week I hope they also do a kind of character of the week episode. If that's true I'm already looking forward to Nurse Chubbles episode. Yeah. Being on that comet trying to communicate with this let's say kind of egg. Reminded me a little bit too much of Star Trek Discovery where they also tried to communicate indirectly uh, in that case with chemical compounds or pheromones something like that with the C species. The cinematography is very nice and all the easter eggs and references to the original series including music etc is also very well done. So I'm quite satisfied with this first two episodes. That will be all for this time. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Pete, speaking of fair
0: criticisms, I I think it very fair for Fred to say, to point out, that, you know, as recently as three or four months ago, Star Trek, which is to say Star Trek Discovery, um, had our Star Trek heroes communicating with a non-corporeal alien life form um, that also was centralized in a spheroid-type shape. Um, I think there's some things where you can say, well, that's just the nature of space, or that's the nature of storytelling, but it is oddly specific (laughs) to have had those two things uh, within a couple of months of each other.
1: I mean, they reuse similar spaces. Who knows, too, in terms of what kind of set decorating further things there. They may have been limited to because of the conditions existing in and around the pandemic. So I'm willing to cut them a break on there. Um, You know, seemed different enough. It's not like they reused, you know, the exact same situation.
0: Well, Pete, I know Fred is looking forward to sharing thoughts for our Star Trek Picard season wrap that we'll be recording tomorrow. And indeed, how can people be in touch with you to talk Star Trek on Twitter?
1: You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 12,465. Followers can't be wrong.
0: And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast, comment on fantasticgeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com
1: slash Fantastic Geek with a P-H, all one word, like it today.
0: Pete, after the busyness of our golden hours, after doing all these season wraps and whatnot, uh, tomorrow on the Pop Culture Podcast feed and the Picard feed, like I said, season wrap for that and then nothing again until star trek strange new worlds episode three if you can believe it maybe there'll be some breaking news here there whatever but uh perhaps the next time we talk star trek strange new worlds will be next week star trek strange new Worlds podcast with that i will say adios to our listeners and give you pete the final word
1: sometimes things go so badly you just have to laugh